You're listening to Switched On Australia, the podcast that tracks the opportunities and challenges of electrifying everything, everywhere. Switched On is brought to you by the publishers of Renew Economy, Australia's best informed, most read website focusing on the green energy transition and is supported by Boundless Earth, using philanthropy, investment and direct advocacy to help Australia become a global force in a decarbonised world. Hello and welcome to another Switched On podcast. I'm Anne Delaney. Thanks for joining me. And I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from the lands of the Iraqwal people, part of the Bunjalung Nation in northern New South Wales. This is where I live and I work. Last time on the podcast, we talked about the Landmark Inflation Reduction Act. It's the largest investment in US history to address climate change. And it includes a massive injection of funding for household electrification. Obviously, in Australia, we don't have anything like an Inflation Reduction Act. Many people wish we did. What we have is a patchwork of different government incentives and policies to help fund the upfront cost of electrification. But what you get depends on which state or territory you're living in. And with time ticking and shrinking government budgets, we can't hold our breath for an Australian Inflation Reduction Act. Some of us will have to rely on private finance. But how do we make finance accessible to everyone? One company that's trying to do that is Bright. Bright started as a finance company offering zero-interest loans for rooftop solar back in 2015. They've evolved and grown into a one-stop shop, helping to finance solar, batteries, heating, cooling, heat pumps, EVs and induction cooktops. And they offer zero-interest loans, green loans and personal loans. And Bright is no longer just a finance company. They work directly with approved tradies who supply and install the appliances. And they also administer government energy and electrification programs. Bright's founder and CEO is Catherine McConnell, and she's my guest today. I started my discussion with Catherine by asking her how important accessible finance will be for electrifying and getting to net zero. So, Anne, it's really important. And it's so important that this last year we changed our mission to actually include uh, solving for accessibility. And so uh, our mission up until last year had been around making um, every household sustainable. And we changed that mission to making sustainability affordable and accessible for everyone. And so what we had recognised was that it wasn't fair to just make sustainability accessible to people that could afford a home. Mm. Uh, that there were going to be barriers that we needed to solve for people outside of homeowners, uh, and that included renters, it included landlord, it included strata blocks, uh, businesses. And so the focus area of Bright is thinking through accessibility and thinking through whose responsibility it is to solve that, uh, how we can enable all those different parties. And I think it's really important that we think about this because I'm really big on fairness, the principle of fairness, and I mm. don't think it's fair that the transition is only for those that can afford to pay for it. And is that what you were seeing, that um, it was it was much more a case of only a, a certain percentage of, uh, of householders were able to access finance? It's the credit regulations are set up in a way that financiers can only provide credit to parties that can afford to make the repayments for the credit. Mm. So financiers may want to provide credit to other people, but if we do, we're actually targeted as providing credit to parties that are vulnerable or can't afford that credit. And so that excludes low-income people, Mm. It excludes, you know, people who don't own the home because they don't have the economic interest in the home. Um, and so there are many groups that under the current credit regulations, uh, businesses in Australia cannot service, uh, you know, some groups of society with, with, with finance. So what do you think needs to be done? Government has to intervene. Government mm. has to intervene to be able to step in where the private market can't provide a solution by itself. 
and there are different ways governments should step in and there are different reasons why they should step in. But where there's a market failure, the government needs to intervene. And, and what, what would you suggest? In what ways do you think that the government should be stepping in? So I think there are lots of examples for, for um, areas where they should step in. And I think the way that they should step in is really dependent on the problem that they're solving and, 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 and um, yeah, the problem that they're solving. So an example might be if government has set a target around uh, achieving uh, you know, climate targets by 2030 and that climate target needs to be reached by underlying households, businesses, uh, making changes to equipment that they use. A household, for example, may be using gas. They may have installed a gas cooker a year ago, yeah. you know, a cooktop, and that's going to last for 10 years. Yeah. But in order for government to meet their, you know, transition agendas and targets, say 20%, 30%, X percent of households have to change gas cooktops to electric cooktops, for example. Now, there's no incentive for a household to accelerate the asset life cycle when something they bought is going to last for 10 years. But if a government intention is that for them to reach their target, the household has to change today, it's not economic for the household to make that decision today. Yeah. But there's an imperative for the government that they should provide to incentivize the household to do that today because there's an economic cost for that household to act today. So I think that there are different examples depending on whether it's grid reliability, accelerated targets, um, you know, societal benefits being created, not just household benefits, um, to kind of think through the problem and, and, and what the solution is. So, so the government basically should take its targets a little bit more seriously is what you're suggesting? I think they, um, you know, it's really great to set a target but I think it's the next thing you need to do is you need to set a plan for how you're going to achieve those targets. And then you need to, you know, set policy around that to be able to look at stick and carrot. So how you incentivize and how you also change regulations to be able to set deadlines around when these things have to happen as far as a, you know, a stick approach, not just the carrot. The, the, the federal government announced $1 billion in cheap loans for home electrification in the last budget. How would you like to see that program work, for instance? What, what's essential for it to, to really make a difference? I think what's really essential is that the government sets a framework around what they want that $1 billion to achieve. And so be very deliberate around they want to target, you know, X percent of households transitioning to solar, transitioning off gas. So I think they should have clear targets around the number of households and the types of equipment they'd like to see changed. And, you know, when I use households, it's a generic term, not just those that afford a house, but those who live in houses and, you know, maybe renters or landlords. So um, I think they need to set targets up front, not just around the billion dollars, but about the type of impact they'd like to have, be it in carbon abatement, you know, be it in number of households, be it in types of equipment. And then I think they need to think through, you know, what is the private sector, what's the market providing, what's working without government intervention and where does government need to intervene? What are the sectors, what are the problems where, where they need to provide a solution that accelerates or bridges because the market can't on its own. Mm. And so what I'd like to see is that upfront policy around what the intention is. I think that there is a, a large element of a program that needs to be offered that needs a framework to ensure that the right you know, the right tradies are being used, the right equipment's being used, um, you know, that things are being done in a way that's safe for households. And that's where I think a program administrator is needed. This is the type of role that Bright provides in government programs today in the ACT in Tasmania. And the importance is, is you know, the importance of that role is just, you know, it, it, it just can't be, um, you know, overestimated. Um, and so I, I think a framework needs to be put in place, policies. I think an administrator needs to be put in place. And then I think it needs to be measured um, how successful that a billion dollars is being deployed and how successful it is in meeting, you know, the upfront targets that have been set, um, you know, and the value and benefits that are being created.
I'll go on to what you're doing in the ACT and in Tassie shortly. I just want to go back to that point that you, you made about regulations. When you talked about regulations, were you, were you talking about regulations in the finance sector that need to be changed or, or, or other regulations that, that government directly oversees? I, I, I'm just wondering, is it government regulation of, the, of private finance? Um, so there's two areas, um, you know, when I think about regulations. One definitely is around something that limits um, those providing credit. And then the other one is regulations as far as how government can uh, look at changing existing regulations um, as far as achieving their targets and how they can provide a mix of the carrot and the stick in, in order to do that. And so on the finance side... Under um, consumer credit, uh, consumer credit laws, mm. there are requirements that ensure that design and distribution obligations, that credit products are designed to meet target, you know, target market, that the party that's going to be using that credit product, um, that that product has been designed in a suitable way. And then there are others that talk about um, that the customer who uses the credit products, an assessment has to be done to make sure that that credit product is suitable for them and effectively to make sure that 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 credit product is not putting stress on that end customer, that they have the ability to make the repayments, that you understand what their costs are. And so it's a combination of, of, of existing, um, you know, structure of, of credit in Australia, which means that those who are low income or those that may have bad credit history, that there are going to be parties that will not be able to access credit from the private sector. So private sector cannot lend to, to some people. Yeah, they're not allowed to. Unallowed to, and I don't think I think those things are in place to protect those parties. I don't think I think they're in place to make sure that those you know what are often perceived as vulnerable parties in society are protected. And I think they're a good thing, but I do think that that will mean that the the upfront cost of the energy transition needs to be financed in order for that to be accessed. And I think those parties will not be able to access finance from the private sector under current credit regulations. And so I think that, you know, that's where government can step in to create credit pro uh, products, be it subsidies, be it concessional finance that are offered by the government that enable those parties to be able to access, you know, credit to remove the upfront cost. Um, just on that second one around mm. regulations, an example is, um, you know, in the ACT government, they've put in um, place uh, standards around insulation and a yes. thermal comfort for, for uh, you know, for renters. And so there are incentives there for, uh, you know, for parties to be able to access incentives from the government to be able to, you know, put insulation in houses. But there are also uh, regulations that have been put in place and changes to, 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 to laws in Canberra where there is a legal requirement that by certain dates that landlords have a certain base standard of thermal comfort in parties that, that, uh, that, that they are renting. So there's also an end date where this change has to happen. Yeah. It raises the whole issue of ratings for houses, etc., the government is expanding and upgrading the national, the nationwide house energy rating scheme, NATERS, to existing homes, not just new ones. How do you think that that is going to not only assist owners and renters, but, but also, I would guess, lenders? I, I think just that, firstly, that clarity up front, that leadership up front is, is what's needed. I think the role of government is to set the aspiration, to set the target, to set the policy and the framework around how that's delivered and part of what the asset they have that they can use to to execute on that target is legislation mm. you know so it's putting in place you know legislation around standards of homes be it existing stock be it new stock and so they can you know they they can put these requirements in place and i think it's it's really clear because then it gives new builders you know, it gives manufacturers, it gives like traders in the industry an understanding and a really timely transition 
to be able to understand when these things have to be put in place, you know, what expectations are. And so you can start to steer the ship in the direction that you want it to go, um, mm. give people time, um, and, and then, you know, enable supply. So the, the type of equipment to be, you know, ready in time, people to retrain. A lot of the types of equipment that needs to be put in place, we don't actually have the right, um, you know, trained installers particularly in the insulation space we've seen, you know, in ACT and outside, that we just don't have the number of people providing a trade in that business to be able to satisfy the demand. And so it gives so much time, I think, um, to be able to help us, uh, you know, move in the right direction in the right timeframes. Yes. I'll, I'll go on to that whole issue of, of tradies and whether or not we've got enough tradies to, to help Australia electrify in a little while. But before that, tell me more about what Bright does. What, what are you offering that's different? Okay. So, you know, I, I founded Bright eight years ago and it really has been a journey along the way. We started off with, you know, with a single solution and over time, Uh, we have continued to evolve and iterate what our offering is. And I think that's what a successful business does. You know, a business that comes out is a one-hit wonder. They create something. It's it's great for a single use case, but they haven't or aren't able to forge how they continue to exist and how they can continue to solve adjacent problems. And I'm really excited that, that Bright exists in a space that's complex and messy because our first product to market was a credit product around 0% interest payment plans that utilised a distribution network of solar installers to to distribute the credit product at the point of sale, which was largely in households. Mm -hmm. And so the problem we were solving was households wanted to access solar. They wanted to start saving on their energy bills, but the upfront cost was something that they couldn't afford. And they said that if they, their solar installers said that if the customer left the point of sale and didn't make that purchase and didn't have a way to pay for it, that it was very unlikely that that customer would make that solar purchase because they'd, they'd leave the point of sale without a way to pay and they'd get busy and right. it would leave the front of their mind and no action would happen. Yeah. And so the feedback that I had from solar installers was if you had a credit product at the point of sale, if it was frictionless, you could actually get the customers to commit to make that decision, to get the equipment installed. And then the next thing was aligning the repayments with the energy savings. If you could actually make the repayments less than the energy savings, you were creating upfront economic value or benefit for that household that it actually became an investment from day one. So nothing to pay upfront. You know, they were starting to generate revenue upfront you know, sometimes if that can't be achieved, well, then maybe over five years you're making the repayments, but then for the next 15 years, you're actually making money. And so, you know, Bright solved that problem of, you know, creating a product that could be utilised at the point of sale that solved the friction that solar installers were having about not being able to convert solar sales and solved the affordability problem that households had around not being able to have a way for pay, a way to pay for them to access sustainability. And so that was our initial product. You know, we developed the credit product. We developed a national network of over, you know, two and a half thousand businesses that, that, that were able to use the credit product to create value. So you were linked in with specific um, suppliers, I understand. Yeah, absolutely. So what we did was we didn't, um, we don't go direct to customer. So direct to the end customer, we go direct to the distribution channel of solar installers, you know, tradies, Mm. effectively, who are gas plumbers, uh, who do, uh, you know, air conditioning installation, um, you know, we do things like blinds, coverings, awnings. So it's all those businesses and, and trades that are effectively selling those products to an end customer. We sign up those businesses, we accredit those businesses, we make sure they're reputable, we make sure they've got, you know, great creditworthiness, that their marketing claims are good, they're using the right equipment. We sign them up, put an agreement in place, do training with them and continue to monitor, you know, to continue to monitor that that network. But they're then effectively provided with the ability um, for their customers to access credit, you know, at their point of sale. Yeah, right. And that you've expanded. Yeah, <laughs> we've said, expanded. So that's how it. we started. Yeah. yeah. 
So we've expanded in different ways. We've expanded, you know, in the equipment categories and those those vendors that we're working with. So it started off with solar, but we've expanded, you know, to energy efficiency, to air conditioning, hot water pumps, stovetops, to EVs, um, EV charging, you know, a whole lot of sustainability equipment. Batteries? Yes, absolutely. Batteries. Yeah. So we're doing batteries, um, but but that whole gamut of sustainability um, tradespeople and businesses and equipment. We've expanded um, from credit products. So we've expanded, we've got a loan product. We've also expanded... the uh so the end customer so we started off with households but we're now um, dealing with people that own their home that are renters that are landlords that are stratas that are small businesses community groups so mm-hmm. you know we've done lots of expansion and then as far as um you know the the vendors we're also now dealing with enterprise and so we have you know act government we have tasmanian government we have others that are underway and we've also started looking at corporate So we've signed our first partnership with Origin Energy and have our first corporate partnership. And so these partnerships are really interesting because they're relying on the capabilities that we have in, um, you know, dealing with this disaggregated network of tradies. Mm -hmm. So they're wanting to rely on that capability. They're wanting to rely on our ability to be able to risk manage that network, to be able to use that network to distribute products. Mm -hmm. And then... Associated skills that we have about running running programs, so running programs in this space, um, and being able to use capabilities that we have within the business, such as you know being able to you know deploy capital, pay invoices to suppliers, um, you know service customers, and that's enabled us to do things like distribute subsidies for government. So we can distribute a subsidy to government for the installation of energy equipment. And, and run programs that actually don't have any concessional finance in them now. So we're providing, you know, other services now to government and corporate that don't involve finance, but are leveraging Bright's operational capabilities. And t- tell me, why did you move in that direction? Because you've also become an energy, you've been classified as an energy retailer, I understand. I mean, energy, energy retailers aren't particularly popular organisations. <laughs> oh, t- I guess I can lead into those two separate, you know, maybe the energy retail second and the first, why did we move into, you know, providing services and our, leveraging our capabilities to, to enterprise customers. But um, leveraging our capabilities, what we identified was that finance... The provision of finance is not the product, the sole product that we have, that the capability that we have in managing that distributed network, in using those treaties to distribute products and all the surrounding skills that we have that that help us do this are effectively capabilities as well as the finance um, you know, the, the finance offering. And so we took a step back and we looked at all the skills we have in the business and actually realised that those could be packaged up and, and modular, like thought about in a modular way and they could be offered as services to, to third parties. And so it was, you know, it, it's adjacent. So we always look at iterative growth and adjacent growth to, to what we're currently doing and how we can expand and how we can continue to solve the sustainability problem and our mission. And so that was why we started expanding. We started getting, you know, feedback from parties that, that they wanted to leverage our capabilities and then we were able to identify how we could, you know, how we could do that. So that was why we expanded. Uh, and also, you know, Bright, con- you know, aspiration is to be in a 100-year business, to be here for a long time, to continue to solve big problems. And so we're going to continue to have to iterate and look at, you know, ways that we can grow to, to, to service the industry and enable the industry. Mm. So that's, yeah, that's why we continue to move and continue to grow. Is it possible to sum up the trends that you've witnessed in household renewable energy purchases, for instance, since Bright has been operating? Yeah, I think the big one has been around uh, solar. And so the big one has been solar systems are getting bigger. And so the size per kilowatt, you know, is, is getting bigger. When we started, we were seeing three, four kilowatts. We're seeing that at around nine kilowatts now on average, which is consistent with Warren, uh, Warwick Johnston's SunWiz mm. data. So we've seen the system size increase. We've seen the dollar value of a system size increase. 
even though the cost per watt for solar has, has largely come down over the time a lot, it's come down a lot while it's, over the time we've been operating, yeah. we have seen other things lift up that um, lift up the cost of solar. So it might be the Australian dollar decrease. It may be, um, you know, componentry cost is increasing. But the, the, the size of the average, um, the, you know, average solar system um, is also increasing. And then we're also seeing the number of households that have had a positive experience with solar doing a, a second installation. Right. Which is really interesting because there's about 3.3, 3.4 million homes that have solar. You know, some will say that the addressable market is around six, seven, eight million. And so you can only service that part of the market, the gap between the 3.3 and then the 7 yeah. million. But our view is actually that whole 3 million homes that have solar are all in the market for more solar because they've had, largely had a really great experience. And a lot of them have systems that are one and a half, two kilowatts. An yes. average system is now nine. So, you know, what we've seen is that solar solar isn't a dying market. It's not an opportunity that is not... Done and dusted. You've got, you, you've got your panels and done and dusted, no. No, it's it's continual. So it's going to keep on growing. If you think about cars, you don't get a car once and that's your car for life. You, you upgrade that car, you know, you get a different car depending on your life cycle. You know, solar is like that. You know, you get more solar because you've got a you know electric home, more solar because you've got, you know, kids in the family. Like yeah. solar changes. But also, you know, it's not just solar. I mean, people want other renewable energy resources like batteries and the smart home energy management systems, I would guess. A hundred percent. But the starting point that we see is solar. And yeah. then people get bigger systems because they want to power their home. And so they start to think about heat pumps. They start to think about air conditioning. When they're renovating a home, they're actually thinking, what else can we use that's electric in our home and not get gas to be able to get more solar? And, and it's so cost effective, you know, the energy that we're growing. How can we grow more energy to power more of our home with the energy we're growing? So I think that's really interesting. People are then looking at the second stage of electrification of their home. Mm. Battery uptake, you know, we're still seeing battery uptake, um, you know, isn't as high depending because of the cost still the upfront cost i think it's the upfront cost we see it really ranges depending on state and depending on um like tariffs feed-in yeah. tariffs and incentives in a region but we see 10 to 10 to 20 percent um battery attachment uh at this stage uh you know some solar installers are actually very successful and they have much higher attachment rates we are seeing up to 50 percent for some solar installers with um you know with their success in selling batteries but what what i think might be happening is that people are starting to think more about heat pumps as an energy storage mechanism instead of a battery yeah. Uh, you know, the, the payback seems to be a bit faster. The cost, upfront cost is a bit lower. There are incentives in place through STCs. And so, you know, heat pumps seem to be something that people are thinking about as the next stage uh, after they get solar as far as electrification. So that's, um, you know, that's that's quite interesting. Did you anticipate the speed that Australians were going to adopt rooftop solar? I did. And that's why I started, right? <laughs> but where I got it wrong was I thought 2020 batteries would be booming at the same rate that solar was in 2010. Oh. So I thought the pace of change of batteries would have been a lot farther, faster, and that's why I wanted to start Bright. I wanted to start it in 2015 because I wanted it to be ready in 2015 with um, efficient, um, efficient capital. So we had the ability to raise cost-effective capital from third-party debt markets uh, to be able to fund the, the acceleration of batteries, household batteries. So I haven't seen, um, I haven't seen batteries uh, take up be as high, but also I am um, also really excited about the potential role that vehicle to grid can play in Australia. Yes, we're we're all waiting. <laughs> yeah, I think Canberra did a great trial, the REVS trial, uh, yeah. and, and that was successful. But I think vehicle to grid, uh, you know, will be interesting to look at the role the EV plays at home and not just the household battery. I know of people who are holding off on getting a battery, a home battery, because they're waiting for vehicle to, to grid, bi-directional charging basically, so that the, you know, their car can charge the house for instance. Um, a lot of people are actually holding off because those batteries are so much bigger than a household battery. 
They are. I've got, we're very lucky, our family, we've got a a small farm on the south coast and it's off grid because it was never connected to electricity or water. Mm. And so uh, we have a battery in there and, you know, we have um, solar panels and I have one power wall and only on a few instances have we, you know, depleted that that battery and so we we talk and have thought a lot about getting another battery but for our situation it's only in you know a few days a year where we need that backup power and so I have a you know 10-15 minute drive to Shell Harbour and Mm. in Shell Harbour Woolworths there's a you know I think it's EV charging network in like 40 minutes I can charge my car up fully for about 20-30 dollars and so what I'm excited about is actually you know driving my car down, charging it up, plugging it in um, to the charger and having, you know, six, seven power walls that I can actually use as a backup for the house on those few days a year. Like I don't want to install another $13,000 power wall. I want to have my car as a movable battery for those days. And so I still see that there is the role of a stationary battery in the home. But I think the, as far as the size of that stationary battery in the home, I don't think it needs to be very big if mm. vehicle to grids here. Mm. Yes, well, we're all hoping that it's going to be coming in soon, but there seem to be a few impediments, and, and including regulations, I understand. I, I wanted to look at the concessional finance, the no-interest loans that um, you're providing for two state governments in Tassie and the ACT. H- how do those programs work? So... Uh, ACT, firstly, uh, ACT has a program that has 0% interest loans for between 2000 to 15000 to eligible ACT households. And so those schemes are available uh, for four categories of equipment. So you can access it category A, solar and batteries, um, category B, energy efficient upgrades, which is aircon, hot water pumps, um, st- electric stovetops, category C's, EVs, so new and used, and electric motorbikes, new and new. Um, and then um, category D is the newly launched um, category, which is insulation, ceiling insulation. And so programs are available for um for, for homeowners, there's some for landlords, and there's a new program that's going to be um, launched soon for Strata. And so that that program works such that Bright does the accreditation of uh, vendors. So parties that are wanting to sell and provide services um, for these equipment categories. Right. And so you have to come to Bright, you have to get accredited, we have to check that you comply with the framework that the government set out, uh, and then an agreement's put in place, trainings provided for that vendor partner. That vendor partner has the ability then to be able to provide the finance application for the concessional finance uh, using the Bright uh, you know, the, the the Bright website or the Bright portal. They've got their own login. And then they then make that application on behalf of the customer. The customer's, um, you know, is then uh, confirmed that they're eligible for the program. So that's via a mixture of the government and, and via uh, criteria that Bright have to assess against. And then the customer is able to, to make that purchase in that that category, depending on the purchase price. For example, if it was an EV that was $60,000, uh, the concessional finance would only cover up to $15,000 of the cost of that that vehicle. The rest of the customer would have to provide the, um, you know, cu- cover the cost or the gap. Mm. Um, but the, the finance is there. And then, uh, you know, Bright supports the, the vendor and ensures they get paid. And then Bright services that customer. So we collect the repayments over the life of the, the 10-year loan. Uh, and then if the customer has any, um, you know, difficulties over the course of that period where they might have some change in their personal circumstances and they have, you know, a requirement to delay that loan or, you know, pause the repayments, that's the type of thing that, that Bright's able to support that customer on. Uh, and then we work with the government to make sure they get the repayments, they get the data uh, on the program. And so we also do that for, for subsidies. So whether effectively households that are low income earners, uh, we're able to, to work with them to, to help them access the subsidy. Uh, and then if they're eligible for concessional finance. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's how that government works, how that government program works. How's it going in terms of non-payment? Would your rates be... Oh 
in terms of non-payment higher than your average bank or lender? So we provide finance to um, we provide finance to the uh, outside of government programs, and so the 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 rates of arrears, the the quality of credit are at the same. Um, or a better, better performing under the government program. A belief that I have is that people who make purchases around home sustainability, it's a firstly, it's a thoughtful purchase. And so if you think about someone who's going into a retail store and it's an impulsive purchase for a handbag mm. uh, and they're accessing credit compared to someone who's making a thoughtful purchase for their home to, that's going to you know, halve the cost of their energy bill. And, and they make the purchase a month later, the equipment's installed, you know, there's an impact to their home in getting the installation done. They're very different purchases. They're very different people. Mm. And so I think up front, you know, up front you have a much higher quality of, of credit customer that, that's entering into this transaction and you have someone that's entering into a credit arrangement and understands the importance and the obligations they have around repayment of that, that credit. Life circumstances may change. That's that's nothing they control. And so, you know, from time to time, there's just a natural element of, of hardship or, you know, late payments that may occur. But but largely, this is a, a very good quality um, customer as far as a credit perspective. Uh, and so it's it's usually, a, a, you know, a, a quality performing loan. That, that's really interesting. Do you think that other lenders make that same distinction between the uh, the buyer, the, the impulsive buyer of the, the handbag and the, the more thoughtful purchase of, of solar panels? I think um, – I don't know if they fully understand or appreciate that aspect, but I'm sure that – uh, you know there are there are lenders out there who understand that these sustainability categories are adjacent to home loans in the mm-hmm. sense that a party they're lending money to for a mortgage uh, would be the same type of party that you could cross sell a sustainability purchase to so I think they'd understand that their mortgage customers are high performing customers and 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 you know they're of a higher quality credit than than other categories say for instance a credit card category uh and so i think they'd be able to you know have that experience from from their own credit data it does it does raise the issue though of the climate knowledge that your average bank and lender has. And I know that a report from the Institute for Sustainable Futures last year found that there's a, what they called a climate skills gap in the Australian financial sector. We don't have enough people who have experience of both climate and the finance sector. Uh, would you agree with that? And, and what skills do you think our banks and lenders need to, uh, I suppose, to, to help more with household electrification in particular? Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting question. And I think that uh, where sustainability is seen as an infrastructure investment, I think that Australian banks and investors, Australian banks are very familiar with infrastructure investments. And so I I think they're more comfortable there. I think in household, our view is that a lot of the sustainability investments that households are going to make are best done as unsecured credit, Mm -hmm. not as secured credit. And so where it's unsecured credit, it's not seen as an infrastructure lend. It's seen as an unsecure lend to a household. And so... Actually, just explain, um, Catherine, just the, the, the precise difference between secured and unsecured, if you could. So a secured is if you have a home, uh, a bank will take a security interest in that home when they provide you with a mortgage for 80% of the cost of that home. And what that gives them the confidence is that if you don't make the repayments mm. on the home, that they have the ability to step in and sell that home and uh, effectively, you know, take money from the sale the sale proceeds to be able to pay back the obligation of the loan that exists on that home. And so it's a it's a it's a security aspect that gives them comfort that the home is worth what you know what they think it's worth that the loan is less than the value of the home, and that the event the customer doesn't pay that that loan will be able to be paid back because they have a legal registered security interest in that property. So just going back to that question about the skills that you think 
um, our banks and lenders need about sustainability, about uh, getting us to net zero, about household electrification, for instance? These are not infrastructure. Um, so when we deal with households, the, the unsecured lending uh, works really well because the customer wants title to the asset. They want to own the asset. Um, and the if you put solar on the roof today and if for some reason a customer didn't pay, it's different to a home. You can't go back in seven years and take the solar off the customer's roof and uh, sell that solar mm. and get the money back to pay for the purchase price. Yes. It's not It's not worth anything. So it's a really different lend, a secured lend to an unsecured lend and an unsecured lend to a household and an unsecured lend to a household uh, that, that, that may be a renter or may, maybe a landlord. So I, I think the skill sets are definitely in Australia for, for infrastructure lending. I think for unsecured consumer lending, they're definitely here because we do unsecured lending on, you know, so we do it on holidays, we do it on, um, you know, on smaller purchases. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the opportunity in the energy transition, perhaps people don't understand the scale of the opportunity. They don't understand the, um, you know, the importance of the, the role that finance plays in the transition, um, you know, the removal of the upfront costs. And then, you know, potentially, um, you know the you know the ability to structure frictionless credit products and frictionless experiences that uh, you know that, that that make it easy and appealing for customers to be able to take action. You know potentially that that isn't there. There are a lot of risks in working in this space, mm, yeah. and so you know also I think some of those parties um, can't get their head around the risks they have to uh, understand and mitigate when they're dealing with an electrician who's in someone's home, on someone's roof, installing live, you know, dealing with live electricity um, and just the, the, the kind of impact or consequence that could have if it goes wrong. Yes. I mean, just going back to that issue of tradies, as we electrify everything, we're going to have an issue with getting the skills and the trades to be able to, to do this. How how are you going in getting those skills? Because you, obviously your business relies in part on the partnerships that you have with um, the vendor, vendor tradies. Yeah. Well, it's something with, uh, I guess, a few areas that we've identified this. So one is we created a, a, solar, a scholarship. Uh, to encourage uh, in the ACT and also in Tasmania we've done this, to encourage more females to get into trades and specifically right. to get a battery qualification. Uh, and we have had a lot of trouble trying to identify, you know, females who have done the, the base level of electrical trades training in order to then equip them to be eligible for this second stage of qualification they need to get. You know, and, and the people who think that, particularly females who think that this is a, a really exciting and viable career option, I think a lot of work needs to be done, uh, you know, in this space to be able to make mm. it appealing and increase the awareness to, firstly, females. Um, secondly, as we've expanded into working in government programs, looking at insulation, there, we've worked with the Energy Efficiency Council to, to think and get their expert, you know, feedback on what they think the standards should be. And those standards have been set and we're definitely finding that there are not many parties that, that meet those standards and have licensed installers that are able to do those installations at the, at the appropriate standards. And so this is absolutely a training issue. Uh, I know the Electrical Trades Union, the ETU, it's something that they're really focused on, looking at the role of apprenticeships in the industry, making sure that we have the appropriate, you know, workforce that's equipped with the right training to ensure that that they're safe. You know, when, when they do the installations, that they're safe, that households are safe. And so I think, you know, thinking through the transition training and having the appropriate workforce is absolutely a huge priority. Mm, do you think the government recognises it enough? I think so. We've had interactions, um, you know, with different levels in the government and I think that they, you know, and the ETU again have done a, a great job here of increasing awareness. Uh, I think this is where it comes down to when you ask me the question about the billion dollars and how do I want to see that deployed. This comes down to the plan 
you know, the government needs to have a plan around how they want that a billion dollars deployed, what categories of equipment. Um, when you think about the categories of equipment, you know, you have to then think through how many households over what time frame, and that's where you need to start to think through what's the government you know, incentives? Do we have the workforce in place to be able to deliver it over this time frame to this many households? I think that's where you start to need to get a little bit more granular as to how we're going to execute, how are we going to deliver and deploy? And I think that's where government policy comes into place um, to think through, can the private sector, you know, deal with this on their own? Or do we need to, you know, have some interventions in different parts of the market to make sure that, you know, we can reach our targets? Mm. Uh, I know you've some of your programs actually do assist renters, but I, I just want to look more at what else needs to be done to help renters. As we know, a third of Australians live in rental properties. What else needs to be done? Is it a matter of encouraging landlords to install more more solar and other renewable energy resources on their rental properties? I mean, what what should banks and lenders be doing to make finance available? I mean, should it be conditional, for instance, on landlords making rental properties more energy efficient and fully electric? What's your view on that? Yeah, I think that there's the stick and the carrot aspect, and I think both need to be considered. Um, you know, when thinking about the split incentive scheme and how do you make the transition accessible to renters. Uh, so, you know, when you think through that that stick, I think that ACT government approach where they have, you know, mandated mm. outcomes around thermal comfort for landlords, I think that that's really important that government looks at the role of, like, legislation and regulation to set dates around you know, by these dates, these things have to have happened. Mm. And I think that they need to do those things around, um, you know, making those mandates in place for landlords, that landlords have to make the changes. Otherwise, there's no incentive for them yeah. to make these changes. So I think that needs to happen. On the carrot approach, we're actually working with a, um, a program that's going to be launched uh, in the next month or so. And mm. this is an exciting program that has funding from the Australian government, but also the ACT government. And I think it's the first pilot of its type in Australia that I'm aware of. And we're calling it MUDS internally, but it's a multi-unit, um, multi-unit development scheme uh, around strata. And so what the program is specifically trying to solve is just a single pilot and it's around how you can get solar into a strata building and how the the renters, uh, commercial occupants of that building and landlords can participate in that cost. And so this is really interesting. It's a program that we're running, not just the provision of finance, but we'll be running a program and it's a single, you know, a single one-stop shop where those parties can find out how they make that, how they participate, you know, in a really streamlined way and access subsidy, access concessional finance and access the ability to individually understand and pay for the benefit that, that they're receiving. Where are you doing that? That's in the ACT. Oh, of course it's in the ACT. <laughs> they're, they're pushing ahead much farther, first, faster than anybody else. Oh, nationally, they're just, you know, they're just leading the way nationally. Um, it's like they're our innovation test case for how things should be done in Australia. Mm. And so, you know, really fortunate to have the support of the Australian government who are chipping in some money around uh, around this. Uh uh, you know, eligible uh, eligible stratas will be able to claim a hundred thousand dollars in benefit. So that that strata group will be able to claim a strata entity, and so fifty thousand will be uh, through concessional finance, and fifty thousand dollars through a subsidy, and mm. then how that's apportioned to the individual participants to be able to receive some of some of that benefit. But first of its type, and what we're really hoping is that we can develop a program around this, you know, with the help of government and with the, the real life experience of those strata, you know, entities that sign up and how we can then make this scalable outside of that program, you know, standalone, bright on its own, um, or maybe we can, you know, receive some other government support in different jurisdictions and how we can scale this to help strata renters and landlords outside of the pilot. Uh, but I think what's really great is that it, it's a problem that it's hard for the private sector to solve alone. You know, government stepping in to develop a pilot with a private sector partner and then the learnings we can share and we can leverage and hopefully soon private sector has a streamlined and frictionless way to solve this on their own.
It's a it's a problem that can't be solved just by the market or by pr- private enterprise, and it's a problem that can't just be solved by government either. Uh, it it really is going to require everybody coming together, par- partnering on this. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think you know the parts of the transition that we have to deal with are like this. I think they're messy. I think they're complex. I think it's a mix of private sector and government. You know, we need to come together. And you know, this is this is Bright's focus. This is Bright's focus that how we can leverage our capabilities and learnings in the industry, um, you know, enabling participants in the industry and how we can expand that enablement and how we can leverage off our, you know, experience in, in providing finance in the industry. Um, you know, specifically, we're the only one in Australia, I believe, that's just focused on solving this affordability problem in sustainability. Uh, and that's, you know, that's that's all we do. And so how we can leverage that just to continue to, to solve that for other segments and other equipment categories. Mm. Just a final question, Catherine. How hopeful are you for the future? Will Australian households be able to make the switch and, and fully electrify in time? I, I think in time is, is debatable. Um, but will they be able to, households be able to do it? Like absolutely, 100%. I think they will because the economic imperative is there. You know, the, the, there's a financial benefit for, for that household to make a change. Like it impacts, you know, their hip pocket and household affordability. So I think, one, the, the, the benefit and the outcome is there for, for households. Um, the second thing is can it happen in time? you know, by our, mm. to meet our targets. I think that's really going to depend on whether government can step up and lean in to provide and support, you know, to support private markets, to support parties where it doesn't make economic, you know, sense today to be able to, to, to make that change. Um, and so, you know, very excited because I think the benefits are real for society. The benefits are real as far as us meeting our climate targets and having, you know, a, a great climate to live in and, you know, but I think the benefits are also there as far as hip pocket and affordability savings, like mm. households can can save money today. And that's, you know, so wonderful with the rising cost of living. So I'm excited about, you know, I'm excited about that. You know, just I, I don't think it's too late for us to say we can, you know, we're not going to meet our targets, but I think we really need to be focused around what is our plan? How are we going to execute on that plan? What are the details of that execution? Um, and how are we going to use policy incentives, work with the private sector to be able to make sure that, that we have a delivery plan, not just an aspirational target? Mm, absolutely. Catherine McConnell, thanks so much for joining the Switched On podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Anne. It's, it's absolutely been my pleasure. And Catherine McConnell is the founder and CEO of Bright. That's it for this Switched On Australia podcast. I hope you can join me next time to hear more about how we can electrify everything with people at the forefront of the electrification transition. I'm Anne Delaney. See you then. See you then.